Good morning. If I've not met you, my name is Travis. I'm a deacon here, uh, and I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us today. Um, so last week, Kevin, sort of in passing, mentioned um, a tendency for folks to get funny about the historical accuracy of the Bible, and like whether or not the Bible is accurate, whether or not it's inerrant, whether or not, you know, all the manuscripts are true. For some reason, I hung up on that this week, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit, and then we're going to get into Isaiah and Matthew. So the, the other reason that I hung up on it is I was listening to N.T. Wright's podcast just before Christmas, um, and he was telling a story that uh, a production assistant for a radio show in Britain years ago contacted him leading into Christmas and said, hey, my producer would like you to come on the show so that you can talk about that while the, the Christmas story you know, has a lot of symbolic meaning, in all likelihood, it didn't really happen that way. And he said, I'd love to come on the show. However, <laughs> I'm going to talk about all the reasons that I think the Christmas story happened just the way that it's depicted in the Bible. And I'm going to talk about other sources that point in that direction. And I'm going to talk about astronomers who have done all this modeling and run back the cosmos 2,000 years and actually have some really interesting ideas about what the sky might have looked like that night. So I'm going to talk, I'll, I'll come on your show, but I'm going to be approaching it from a different direction. And they said, no thanks. <laughs> he also talked about how being an ancient historian, as he is, he realizes something that we might not. Ancient texts function very much in the way that the ancient texts of the Bible do. So, you know, folks may say, well, there's only one or two manuscripts of that book of the Bible, so that's probably not super valid. Or they'll pick apart Gospels and say, but look, there's a verse over here that doesn't appear in that manuscript over there. And he mentioned that in secular ancient texts, this is very common. There are all sorts of transcripts that aren't from the tr Christian tradition, that are from that time period, that we may only have one or two copies of, that are widely accepted, so it's, you're sort of using a different lens if you try to pick the Bible apart this way. It was thousands of years ago. There was no Dropbox. You couldn't retweet it into perpetuity. So the fact that we have them at all is a bit of a miracle. Another thing is that there are parts of the Bible that are very well supported outside the Bible. Here's the deal. Jesus existed. It's it's fact. Like it is supported outside the Bible. You can do things to try to make him not who he said he was at your own peril, but he existed. Josephus, very well-read, very well-recognized Jewish historian from that time period, writes extensively about Jesus. Didn't convert to Christianity, but Jesus is there in his historical accounts. Another interesting thing to me when I read the Bible is the way that it connects the hyperlinks between books in the Bible. The Bible, even though I hold it here as a single bound text, is not a book. The Bible is a library that was written over centuries by dozens of different people. And even so, it locks together. The more you read it, the more it locks together. So, I guess I was bored this week, and I decided, since we were looking at Isaiah and Matthew, to look at all the times that Isaiah is either referenced or proofed in Matthew. So, this is just Isaiah, just Matthew. 
Isaiah, by the way, written probably 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 7:14, "Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." 700 years before that happened. That appears in Matthew 1:23. Isaiah 40 verse three, describing John the Baptist, who we're about to talk about. A voice cries, "In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God." Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That appears in Matthew 4, verse 15. Isaiah 53, 4, surely he who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 42 appears in today's passage, so we'll get there in a minute. It's also directly quoted in Matthew 12 and shows up a second time in Matthew 12. Isaiah 6 9 appears in Matthew chapter 13. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Isaiah 29, 13 appears in Matthew 15, 7. Isaiah 56, 7 appears in Matthew 21. Texts that are over 700 years apart and they still lock together. We'll get into the Isaiah 42 bit here in just a minute. So I don't tell you this because I think that we have to objectively prove the Bible. If you go that direction, you're trying to be God. Because then you think you need to understand every word and every verse and every story in that collection, and you don't. Some of this we're not to know. I do this as an encouragement so that if somebody challenges you this way, you're comfortable at least engaging in the conversation. We don't need to hide in the corner and behave as though we believe in a fairy tale because we don't. Our faith is based in historical fact. And we can be confident in that. We don't have to explain every detail, but we don't have to hide from that conversation either. In that same vein, the Bible is incredible. It is the collection that God wanted us to have. It's the way that he chooses, a way that he chooses to communicate with us in our day. The Bible is not the point. Jesus is the point. The Bible, in its entirety, from Genesis to Revelation, points to Jesus, which is handy because this is the first Sunday of Epiphany. See, I got you there. (laughs) Just a little bit of a walk around. So Epiphany is the realization, uh, January 6th, some uh, some traditions call it Three Wise Men's Day. It's the realization of who Jesus is. It's also the recognition that Jesus is fully human and fully God. And it's the day that we, we recognize his baptism. And we talk about that in Isaiah and in Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah 42. <clears throat> Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So you got to wonder if you're a, a Jew 700 years before Jesus, Israel has been persecuted and enslaved and, and all sorts of other stuff over the years. And then Isaiah writes, a bruised reed he will not break. You got to be thinking, man, I'm going to need this guy to break more than a bruised reed. <laughs> we need this guy to deliver us. I, I, I can't help but wonder you know, we have the benefit of reading the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, what that would have sounded like to an ancient Jew. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So the way this text lines up this week points us directly to Matthew 3 and his baptism. So we'll, we'll sort of compare these as we go. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. All right, so we're talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament pointing back and forth at one another. Why? Okay, so first of all, John, who was also sort of noted in Isaiah, the one who cries in the wilderness, so we know who John was. Uh, John had been talking to Jews about their sin, and about their failures, but also about a hope that would come on the other side of that. So what was he baptizing for here? He was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins and for repentance. So these were Jews who were coming to be baptized. Where was he doing that? In the Jordan. Why does the Jordan make any difference? Because 500 years earlier... Israel crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Now John is baptizing them for the forgiveness of sins and for repentance for the new covenant, who's about to walk in that same water with him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So there... <laughs> I, I, I want to picture the look on John's face. You know, so say um, Bishop Steve is our, our bishop ordinary. Let's say the ACNA decided he, he was elected to be the next archbishop. And he came to me and said, hey, Trav, I, I need you to install me as the archbishop of the ACNA. That would be odd <laughs> for a bishop to ask a deacon to do that. This is that times 10,000. And John recognized it in that moment. Why in the world would I be baptizing you? And Jesus says, let it be so now, and thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So do you think Jesus needed more righteousness? Was he, was he going to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and for repentance because he needed more righteousness? This was to fill, fulfill all righteousness for us. He became what we are so that we could live into his righteousness, so that we can receive his grace. 
So this is that idea that I mentioned before of Jesus being fully man and fully God and him insisting on living into that human experience so that he could become what we are in order that we can participate in his righteousness. Then when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, Jesus... Uh, has come into the world as a baby, uh, has gone through childhood, is about to begin his ministry. He's going to perform all sorts of miracles. He's going to raise people from the dead. He's eventually going to bear all of humanity's sin on his shoulders. So the way he chooses to enter into that, instead of with much fanfare and applause and in an exhibition of power, is to wade into the waters of baptism, to be counted among among sinners, and to be in that place as a human, fully. And in that, the skies open up, the Spirit of God lands on him, and his Father names him. He doesn't assert it, the Father asserts it. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So then if we go back to Isaiah, the second half of the Old Testament reading from today, we're told what what this son is here for. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And the new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Last week, Kevin contrasted King Herod with the wise men. So King Herod was trying to grab power, which led him to his destruction. The wise men were seeking truth, which brought them close to Jesus and into worship. I think the passages this Sunday and this concept of how Jesus came into his ministry, we see Jesus who will do all the things I just said he would do. He's going to bear the brokenness of humanity. He's just starting to fix this humanity, but he doesn't start it in power or in control. He humbly wades into the waters of baptism. The Father affirms him and establishes his identity. Just as Kevin said last week, humanity is drawn more and more to control and to power and to to wanting to, to be the driving force behind this thing. The more we do that, 
the more we separate ourselves from God. Instead, if we see Jesus' example here, we're led to humility and to submission to the Father. From there, we receive his righteousness, we receive his grace, and in that spot, you're best able to live into the identity that he set for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.